Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. But today, we have the dramatic conclusion of our study in the book of Ruth. So turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel. And as you are turning there, let's briefly recap where we've been. Chapter 1 was all about a famine. Chapter 1 was all about a famine, during which the family of a man named Elimelech, this family left their home in Bethlehem to flee the famine, and they went to the foreign land of Moab. And while in Moab, great tragedy happened upon this family. Elimelech, the patriarch, died, as did his sons. And that left three widows, Elimelech's wife, Naomi, along with her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Orpah chose to remain behind in Moab, but Ruth, she clung to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and they returned together to Bethlehem. And so while chapter one was all about a famine, chapter two was all about a field. Chapter two was about a field, specifically the field of a righteous man named Boaz. Haven't you grown to appreciate Boaz over these three chapters so far? And in that field that belonged to Boaz, the widow Ruth, she did what she could to support and care for her mother-in-law, Naomi. Ruth went and gleaned the leftover barley that remained on the ground to feed herself and her mother-in-law. And when Naomi found out that the owner of the field was this guy named Boaz, she got really excited. Now, why did she get excited? Because Boaz was, in fact, a close relative of the deceased husband, Elimelech. And one of the customs of the day was something called levirate marriage. Levirate marriage. It literally means brother, husband's brother. And the nearest unmarried male relative would marry a widow so that she might not be left destitute. And the male was known as the kinsman redeemer. In Hebrew, that word is goel. And so Naomi put in motion a plan for Ruth to approach Boaz with an invitation for him to fulfill his responsibility as the kinsman redeemer. Now, that, that, was, that seems odd to us that Ruth would approach Boaz, but that was, in fact, the custom of the day. A plan which was executed in chapter 3, a floor, a floor. Um, a threshing floor, to be exact, where according to the customs of the day, Ruth approached Boaz with the invitation to fulfill the role of a kinsman redeemer in levirate marriage. And guess what? Boaz happily accepted. He loved the plan. He loved the idea, except there was a problem, a potential problem. According to Boaz, there was a family member even closer to Elimelech than him. And that family member would have the right of first refusal in marrying Ruth. And so chapter 3, a floor, closes with what we call a cliffhanger, right? A cliffhanger. You say, what's a cliffhanger? 
Well, it, it was a pretty cheesy movie back, I think, in the 90s, but um, it's really a plot device in which a dilemma is presented at the end of a chapter, section, or story. Cliffhangers introduce a plot twist that is intentionally left unsolved in order to enhance the suspense and drama of a story. And so, boy, do we have some suspense and drama at the end of Ruth chapter 3. Will Ruth get to marry the righteous man Boaz? Or will she be forced to marry the mystery man who was actually closer in relation to Elimelech? And all of that brings us to chapter 4, which is a family. A family. And the chapter today breaks down into three main parts. Verses 1 through 12, we're going to encounter a husband. And verses 13 through 17, a son. And in verses 18 through 22, a lineage. And so we will circle back to each one of those. So let's take a look, first of all, at that first section, a husband. A husband, where in verse 1 of chapter 4, it begins, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Now let's set the scene here. It's important to note that in that day, the gate of the city, it functioned as kind of a combination of a city council chamber and a courtroom. It was the place where business was conducted and legal matters were resolved. And once again, as we have seen throughout the book of Ruth, we have one of those divine coincidences which are really no coincidence at all. They are examples of God's providence at work as he brings together all things for good and for his glory. Well, in, in this time, the relative closest to Elimelech, the one with the first right of refusal to marry Ruth, he just happens to walk by when Boaz is at the city gate with ten elders. And again, no coincidence here. This is God at work orchestrating a divine appointment. And so Boaz calls out to the man to have a meeting. And Boaz outlines the purpose of the meeting in verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So, so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. Now, to truly understand what's going on here, we have to understand the perspective that the Jews had regarding land as prescribed by God, because it's very different than our perspective on land. In Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23, God said to his people, the Israelites, he said, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. So who owns land? God owns land. The Jews were but stewards. They were tenants. They were caretakers of God's land. And when Israel came into the promised land during the days of Joshua, the land was divided among the tribes and the family groups. 
And God intended that the land stay within those tribes and family groups. It was in part a protection for the poor and the destitute, that they would always have resources available to them. Now, what this meant was that land could never be permanently sold outside of a family. And so to ensure this, every 50 years, something called Jubilee was observed. Again, this, is, this goes so against our perspective on ownership and things, but what would happen is every 50th year, land would revert back to its original owner from the original tribes and families. But in the meantime, one of the mechanisms to keep land in its proper family was this concept that we've been talking about called the kinsman redeemer. Remember last week, we talked about five responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer. Uh, number one, they were to avenge the death of a murdered relative. Number two, to marry a childless widow of a deceased brother. That's going to come into play. Number three, buy back family land that had been sold. Filed that away. Number four, buy back a family member who had been sold as a slave and then number five, look after needy and helpless members of the family. The ones in yellow, I think, are applicable to the story here of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. So here at the city gate, in the meeting with the closer relative, Boaz is focusing on responsibility number three. And he says to the closer relative that, hey, this is your opportunity to buy back that land. As it says in Leviticus 25.25, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So as I try to kind of read between the lines a little bit, I'm guessing that Naomi's situation was something like Elimelech during the famine in this time of poverty, perhaps he had to take out sort of what we would call a second mortgage on his land during the famine. He was greatly in debt. And now years later, Naomi still has technical ownership of the land, but she's greatly in debt, and she desperately needs to sell. But she needs to sell to a kinsman redeemer who will keep the land in the family. Well, this closer relative, he, he liked the offer. He liked the sound of this invitation to acquire land. This would be good for his portfolio. This would be good for his investments. He's in. He's ready to redeem. And I can't help but think if Ruth would have somehow been around the corner listening, how do you think she's feeling right now? Oh, the mystery man. I have to go with him rather than Boaz. But then Boaz reads to the closer relative the fine print in verse 5. Here's the fine print. Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So I, I really believe Boaz shrewdly set this guy up. You know, he gave him the carrot first and like, oh, that sounds good. But then, oh, oh yeah, I almost forgot. There's a wife involved, a Moabite. To redeem the land, you will have to also redeem her. And all of a sudden, the closer relative, he changes his tune. The, the deal for the land didn't sound nearly as good. And so we read in verse 6, Then the Redeemer said, oh, I, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, or I cannot redeem it. Now, why do you think the closer relative had such an instantaneous change of heart? 
Well, it could have been for one of several reasons. I think, first of all, might have been the phrase that Boaz used, I believe very intentionally, Ruth the Moabite. If you recall back to to week one, we talked about the relationship between the Israelites and the Moabites and how they were enemies. They didn't like each other. There was a lot of prejudice and hatred between the two groups. And so it's very possible, if not likely, that this closer relative had some prejudice toward the Moabites, and maybe he was even considering the impact that bringing a Moabite wife into his life would have on his reputation and how he went about his life. No way was he going to marry a Moabite. A second reason that he may have changed his mind is the additional expense. Hey, let's be real. Wives are expensive, are they not? That's the loudest amens I think I've ever gotten in a sermon. The near relative would have to spend his own resources to not only purchase the land, but now to support a wife and to raise up a child in fulfillment of his role as the kinsman redeemer. And this child, we'll talk about this more in a second, this child would one day come back when grown and claim the land for himself in whose name? Elimelech's name. So all of a sudden, this was not shaping up to be a profitable venture, and that leading to the third reason that the change of heart may have been due to a complicated inheritance. It is possible that the man already had children from a previous marriage, and to bring on this land and a new wife and have more children, well, this would greatly complicate things for his existing children who would then have to share in their father's inheritance. Now, interestingly, a document called the Targum has an interesting take on this. And the Targum is simply an ancient Aramaic paraphrase or commentary on the Hebrew Scriptures. And so it is not inspired Scripture by any means, but it does give us an ancient Jewish interpretation of the Scriptures. And in regarding to the closer relative in this passage, it says this, I cannot redeem it because I have a wife already, and it is not fit for me to bring another into my house lest brawling and contention arise in it, and lest I hurt my own inheritance. So again, this is merely speculation because it's not in the actual text of Scripture, but again, it reinforces the idea that he most likely had children from a previous marriage, if not a wife already, in existence, and was concerned about the impact that this would have on his kids. So the closer relative, he says, I'm out. I forfeit my role as kinsman redeemer, and that gives Boaz the green light. But first, they had to make it legal, and they do so in verse 7. It says, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Machlon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Machlon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So here's another strange, admittedly, tradition, which seems really weird. The transfer of the sandal, which was a symbolic transfer of ownership. And we might say, why a sandal? 
One commentator put it this way. He said, the shoe was that which trod upon the land, and to draw it off and pass it to another would seem to indicate that all claims upon the property had passed from the one to the other. In fact, there's scripture that talks about you know, God telling the Israelites, wherever your foot trods, every place where you put your foot you know, will belong to you. And so as representation of that, that symbolism of the, the sandal, the foot, stepping on land and transferring ownership of that land, the sandal was used. When the sandal was transferred, so was right to the land. Well, anyway, things got real official when the sandal got handed over. And all the witnesses that were there, they got really enthusiastic about the whole thing in verse 11. It says, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built upon the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Now there's a couple head scratchers in these verses. It's like, why did they mention Rachel and Leah? Well, you'll remember in your history, Rachel and Leah were the wives of a man named Jacob, whose name later became Israel. And so for a time, these women were barren and had no children, just as at this point, Ruth had no children. But then Rachel and Leah would go on to become the mothers of God's chosen people, the Israelites. And through them were many offspring. And so it is hoped that Ruth would be just like Rachel and Leah. Many offspring. And the witnesses go on to say in verse 12, And may your house be like the house of Perez. Now that name's a little lesser known, I imagine. Whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Anybody know who Perez is? Why is he mentioned in the context of this blessing? Well, Perez was the main ancestor of the Bethlehemites. Where is the story taking place? In Bethlehem. So Perez, a very significant player in Bethlehem historically, where this is taking place. And so it's no surprise that Perez was held in high esteem by the elders of Bethlehem. But if we dig a little deeper, there are some fascinating, if not shocking, points of connection with the Boaz story, especially in regard to leverate marriage. You see, back in the day, Judah, one of Jacob's sons, had a son named Ur, who married a woman named Tamar. Ur died, leaving Tamar a widow. Now, does that at all sound like something in the book of Ruth? But when Tamar tried to invoke her right to leverate marriage to Ur's brother Onan, Judah, the father, he refused to allow that marriage to take place. We don't know exactly why. Perhaps he was afraid that um, his next son in line would, would pass away. So Tamar, the widow who was rejected in regard to leverate marriage, she took matters to, into her own hands in a very inappropriate way. She deceptively seduced the father, Judah, to have sex with her, and this produced a son named Perez. So again, we have some interesting points of connection with the story of Ruth and leverate marriage. What was intended and how it was supposed to work didn't work appropriately here. But of course, the blessing being given by the witnesses here in Ruth 4 is in reference to what Perez became and not the means by which Perez was conceived. Although I think it's important to note, as we'll see later, spoiler alert, Perez in the lineage 
of Jesus. All right, and how there's a lot of skeletons in that lineage, but it just goes to show that God takes imperfect people and uses them for his honor and his glory and does miracles and bringing transformation and restoration even in the darkest of circumstances. At any rate, when it's all said and done, Boaz is a happy man. He has been given the go-ahead to fulfill his role as kinsman redeemer, and he will marry Ruth. And so in our discussion of Ruth 4, that is the section entitled, A Husband, let's go to the next one, A Son. Look with me at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. Now, remember in our last section, it was the witnesses at the gate who were blessing Boaz. Now it is the women of Bethlehem who are giving a blessing. And to whom is that blessing being given? Is it to Ruth? No. Who's getting the blessing here? Naomi. Naomi. For you see, here's the thing. Ruth gets a husband and a baby, but it is technically Naomi who gets redemption. Ruth is the legal representative of Naomi and Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. But technically speaking, Boaz is redeeming Naomi and her household by marrying her daughter-in-law, Ruth, because Ruth is the one through whom the lineage will continue. And the women of Bethlehem pray that this child will be renowned in Israel. And as we're going to see in a few moments, these women had no idea just how renowned this child would one day be. Be. I think that maybe there's just a little bunny trail there for us to, to think. Sometimes, maybe many times, we don't even fully grasp or understand the significance of what we may think are small prayers. But those small prayers in the hands of a big God can have mighty, mighty fruitfulness. Well, they go on to pray for the impact of this child in verse 15. It says, he, the child, shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. How many grandparents do I have here today? Raise your hands. I can't wait. I can't wait to be a grandparent. Um, tried to plant that seed with my daughter a few times over the last several days and was, got lots of those eye rolls and stuff. But many of you know firsthand how grandchildren bring a renewed sense of energy and purpose and joy. They can, in fact, in many, many different ways be a restorer of life. And the women in Bethlehem anticipate that this will absolutely be true for Naomi. Remember the one who, who left full, came back empty, and now she is being restored and she is being filled with so many of God's blessings. And they pray then to, that Ruth would receive one of the highest of compliments. What they do is they, they pay to Ruth one of the highest of possible compliments in the second half of verse 15. Listen to what they say about Ruth. Naomi, your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Now what you got to understand is that in Jewish culture, one son, a son, was considered to be the greatest of blessings. But to have seven sons? Seven was the number of perfection and completion. And so to have seven sons would seem to be the ultimate blessing. But the women say to Naomi that Ruth is even greater than having seven sons. 
just how much Ruth was held in high esteem. And then we read in verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So Naomi takes on the role of a a doting grandmother caring for her grandson, Obed, whose name literally means servant. And we start to get a hint of just how renowned this child will be as we look ahead to the next section in chapter 4, which is a lineage. A lineage. Look with me at verse 18. It says, Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Yes, that David. David the giant killer. David the king, the renowned leader of Israel during what was known as their golden age. And even more significantly, if you're putting together the pieces... We read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, it has its lineage that it's giving there. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And then you skip down to verse 16 in that lineage. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. See, this child Obed who is the offspring of Boaz and Ruth, is in the very lineage of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this was further emphasized in Luke's gospel, who wrote in Luke chapter 2, verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, the same setting as the book of Ruth, because Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. See, those prayers that the child Obed would be a man of renown were certainly answered. He was, in fact, in the very lineage of Jesus, which actually makes our journey through the book of Ruth a perfect setup for the season of Advent, does it not? And it it helps to connect the dots, I think, as well, between Old Testament and New Testament. And you all know how much I love when Scripture fits together as a cohesive whole, as if it has one author, because it does. Because it does. One meta narrative from Genesis to Revelation, all pointing to Jesus the Christ, just as it does even here in the book of Ruth. And so again, we see all oh, God's providence over and over and over again in the book of Ruth as he brings these minute, what seem to be minute details together, but have ultimate impact for all eternity. And so that is, in Ruth chapter 4, a husband, a son, and a lineage. Again, by God's grace and providence, Ruth marries righteous Boaz, her kinsman redeemer, and has a son who is an important link to Jesus the Messiah. Let's now talk about application and answer that question, how should we then live? I mean, the Ruth story is nice. It's got some romance. It's got some drama. There's a cliffhanger. Lots of interesting cultural, historical stuff going on. But when we wake up on Monday morning, so what? 
So what? What difference does it make? And I have three points of application for us today. And the number one point of application, be redeemed. Be redeemed like Naomi. Because you see, we have far more in common with Naomi than we realize. She was hopeless and helpless and unable to save herself. She desperately needed a kinsman redeemer to come to her rescue. And church, likewise in our sin, we are hopeless and helpless and in desperate need of the greater kinsman redeemer, Jesus the Christ. For in the story of Ruth, Boaz is what we call a type or picture of Jesus. Check this out. On the left side of the column, you've got Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. Number one, had to be a family member, right? Number one on the Jesus side, the greater kinsman redeemer. God became man in the flesh so he could be our kinsman and redeem us. Number two, and if you, I know we're going to go through these faster than you can write them. I will post them on Facebook, and if you send me an email, I'll, I'll give them to you there as well, but we need to keep moving. Number two, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, had the duty of buying members out of slavery. And church, Jesus, the greater kinsman redeemer, he redeemed us from the slavery of sin and death. Boaz had the duty of buying back land that had been forfeited. Likewise, Jesus, the greater kinsman redeemer, in the future, he will redeem the earth that Adam forfeited to Satan. Number four, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, was not motivated by self-interest, but a sincere love for Ruth. Likewise, Jesus, the greater kinsman redeemer, was motivated by the love of God, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. Number five, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, redeemed Ruth to be his bride. Jesus, the greater kinsman redeemer, has redeemed us to be his bride. And number six, Boaz, as kinsman redeemer, provided a glorious destiny for Ruth. And church, Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, provides a glorious destiny for us. Isn't that beautiful? Naomi's only hope was to be rescued by the kinsman redeemer Boaz. And likewise, our only hope is to be rescued by the greater kinsman redeemer Jesus. And so I ask you, have you been redeemed like Naomi? You say, well, Chad, how, how do I do that? You have to come to that place in your life where you recognize like Naomi that you have nothing that you can contribute, nothing that you can give, nothing that you can do to save yourself. And you have to put your trust fully in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, receiving him both as Savior and as Lord. And at that point in time, the transaction takes place in which Jesus becomes your kinsman redeemer. The old hymn writer remarkable story. If you're looking for something interesting to read about, go, go look up Fanny Crosby, a blind woman who wrote hymns. And she wrote this, redeemed, that word should ring a bell for us, and we should have maybe a better picture of what that means to be redeemed today. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy. His child and forever I am. And so... 
Number one, be redeemed like Naomi. Number two, be transformed like Ruth. Be transformed like Ruth. Now, one and two really go together because there's no such thing as being redeemed without being transformed. But I think it's important to point out their distinctions. Those who are redeemed are transformed. The great kinsman redeemer, he brings life change, does he not? Do you think Ruth's life changed when her kinsman redeemer came? Of course it did. We saw many, many dramatic ways in which now Ruth's life was totally different. Dramatic life change. Ruth went from loneliness to love. She went from toil to rest. She went from poverty to wealth. She went from worry to assurance. And she went from despair to hope. And so church, as important as it is that Jesus came to change our identity, and he did, and that's very important, he also came to practically transform your life. And far too many professing believers have settled for something less than that abundant life that Jesus promises. That's why we spent over a year teaching and preaching on what the abundant life is all about. Now, why do we settle for less? Two reasons, I think. Number one, perhaps we lack faith that Jesus will actually do what he promised. And number two, perhaps we lack the courage to step out in obedience. And those two things have to be present for us to experience the fullness or abundance of life in Jesus. Faith and obedience. If you lack one or the other, you're gonna miss out. And and fortunately in the story, boy, do we see Ruth as an example of stepping out in faith? We talked about last week when she showed up at the threshing floor, the great step of faith, the risk that she took, the courage that that um, depended upon, and she also stepped out in obedience. Will you do the same? Will you do the same? So be redeemed like Naomi, be transformed like Ruth, and number three, be sacrificial like Boaz. Be sacrificial like Boaz. Question, whatever happened to Orpah? Never hear from her again, do we? Right? The, the, the wife, the widow, who looked out for her own best interest, decided to stay in Moab because that was what would best serve her. Never hear from her again. She disappears. Whatever happened to this closer relative who, as he looked out for his own best interest, refused to fulfill his role as the kinsman redeemer? Whatever happened to him? No idea. Never hear from him again. What's the lesson? I think the lesson is, it is those who live sacrificially who become people of renown. Those who live sacrificially, who set aside their security and their comfort and take bold, courageous, risky steps of faith like Boaz did and like Ruth did. Guess what? We're reading about them today, aren't we? We're reading about them today. And both would tell you that the reward was far greater than the sacrifice. Church, it's important for us to to read stories of sacrifice, to read biographies of heroes of the faith. And the, the one thing that every biography of a hero of the faith has in common, whether it's in the scriptures or it's in a book written about a missionary or someone who is living out their faith, they are all people of sacrifice who somewhere along the way decided that it was more important to live courageously and risky, faith filled lives than to live comfortable lives of security. Orpah, closer relative chose comfort and security 
No idea what ever happened to them. But Ruth stepped out in faith. Boaz took upon himself a Moabite wife. And now we celebrate who they are in Jesus Christ. So be redeemed like Naomi. Be transformed like Ruth. And be sacrificial like Boaz. I want to close with this. I think some of you may need to hear it today. It's a good recap of the book. It says, The book of Ruth opens with three funerals, but closes with a wedding. There's a good deal of weeping recorded in the first chapter, but the last chapter records an overflowing of joy in the little town of Bethlehem. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Church, there's a lot of weeping in this life, is there not? And some of you today are in a season of weeping, a season of mourning. But one of the lessons of the book of Ruth is that for all of God's children, all of God's children, we will all live happily ever after. I can't tell you when that day is going to come. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But Jesus himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this short but impactful book. Thank you for how, once again, you demonstrate that there is a consistency, there's a cohesion, there's a a thread that runs throughout all the books of Scripture. That thread is Jesus. That thread is Jesus, and we worship him today. We thank you for the pictures that we get to see in the scriptures, which help us to understand who Jesus is. Thank you for the picture of the kinsman redeemer. God, I pray for anyone who is here this day who has not yet experienced what it is to be redeemed. God, may may today be the day of salvation for them. May they put their faith and their trust in you alone. God, for all of us, may we live sacrificially like Boaz May we be transformed like Ruth. May you make us what we could be and what we should be by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.